Okay, so guess where we're going to study today? Ephesians 6. You've got it. All right. We're adding about a half a verse a week. We've got two more weeks on this study. After today, we'll finish on Palm Sunday. And uh, so we're kind of, uh, this is the sixth week in. Uh, Let me give you some background. So we really believe that the Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant and uh, influential writers that ever lived. It could be, mm, dare I say this, it could be that he may have been the smartest guy alive in his time. Now, uh, that's a huge claim, but he was brilliant. He had studied under uh, Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Um, and it's interesting, if his work had not been what it is, why would it be... Uh, why would it have been studied for the last 2,000 years over and over and over again? From uh, the common laborer to the college professor, from a church attender or, or a skeptic, uh, we all kind of tend to read Paul and respond to what he wrote between, it's interesting, 40 A.D. and 60-some A.D., uh, so long ago, from Greek, written in Greek, uh, it, Translated into Latin, every language under the sun. Uh, he's been translated and retranslated. And uh, besides the gospel writers themselves, it's safe to say no other author in history has had that kind of an effect. He um, wrote most, most of the New Testament. Think about that for a minute in terms of pages, verses, that kind of thing. So if, uh, if Paul Burleson were here today, he's preaching somewhere today. If Paul Burleson was here, was here today, I'd say if your name is Paul, so from, um, from um, uh, Roman popes to Southern Baptist preachers, if your name is Paul, it's a tribute at least somewhat to, um, to this great writer, Christian um, demonstrative Christian in his day. So uh, we'll continue to study him today. Now, we've been talking about the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. We've been using this metaphor that Pastor Search has written about for us. Uh, we've been using this metaphor of uh, a Roman soldier in battle, and this metaphor of battle uh, for the last was this is the sixth week. We'll have a couple more weeks of this. Um, I, I read a, a, a Barna study this week that's disturbing. Okay, what we have tried, what we've tried to zero in on, is the fact that you and I, even though unseen, are in a spiritual conflict with a real enemy. I read a, a Barna study this week, eighteen hundred and seventy-one people who identified as Christians, identified as committed believers, in in this survey, 40% of them believe that Satan is not a living being, but just a, um, a representative of evil in our world. 40%. Don't believe he's real. It's just kind of a name for... Um, for a, a, the symbol of evil. And by the way, another 19% of those who were surveyed agreed somewhat with that statement. So you could argue that 60% think Satan's just an idea. And that's of committed Christians or believing Christians. Wow. 
So, job. huh? He's doing his job. Uh, he's, boy, Dan, yeah. <laughs> he's doing his job. So, um, what are we as Christians to do? Well, Paul's going to give us an advice here. I'm going to say to you this, and you may not like this statement, but not only is he a, is Satan on the ropes, he is a defeated foe. If I believe what, in what happened at the cross in the first Easter, Satan's a defeated foe. He just hadn't quite accepted that yet. <clears throat> and you and I need to live accordingly. Now, um, so our idea for today, our, our, our um, theme verse has been 611. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able, be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. And our big idea for today is that we need to trust in God for this life and the next. And if, when we do so, it helps us to stand strong when the evil one tells us we aren't good enough or we need to save ourselves by doing something else, like trying harder. We're going to deal with that a little bit today. Now, you ever had somebody just kind of get in your head? If you're an athlete, maybe it was somebody that you were, if you're playing basketball, somebody guarding you or somebody you're guarding, and one or the other of you kind of got in one another's head. One of my favorite, uh, if you're watching uh, the Final Four or watching uh, uh, March Madness, you'll see some of this. Evidently, there's a lot that goes on between two players uh, guarding one another that you and I don't hear, you know, when Jim Nance is covering the, the game. I know that a lot of it happens on the football field, okay, the guys we line up against. Uh, a dear friend of mine that I talked to a few days ago played, uh, he was the center, he was an All-American center for Texas Tech, and uh, he had to, when they played Baylor, he had to line up across from... Um, all of a sudden, I can't think of his name. Thank you. Mike Singletary. Mike Singletary was, was middle linebacker, and he said those eyes were intimidating, as intimidating as anything I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> if you know who Singletary was. Now, so I've, I've been kind of interested in a, in a side story about, about the NFL in the last few years. Maybe you've heard some of this. So Michael Crabtree, who also played for Tech and played for two or three different NFL teams, at the time, I think he was a wide receiver for the Raiders, I think. He got into it in a head game with a guy by the name of Aqib Talib. Do you remember this story? I think Talib was playing for the Broncos at the time. I think he might have been playing for the Patriots. It actually makes me feel better if this happened while he was playing for the Patriots. But okay, that's another story. <laughs> Talib lined up on the other side of him, and as they were going down the... So Talib is a defensive back. Michael Crabtree is a really fast and good wide receiver. As they're going down the field, Talib reaches out and takes the chain around his neck and breaks it, throws it away. Okay, now you, Kathy, I love your response to that. Oh, who does that? It got in Crabtree's head. Guess what? The next game they played against each other, he did it again. And it kind of became a thing. Uh, you might look, look, I keep Talib, and I bet it's going to come up. By the way, good luck spelling that, but uh, I think it's going to come up. Uh, he got in his head. Uh, isn't that interesting to you? 
The evil one loves to play head games. I've been reading from our little book, the screw tape letters. He knows my hot buttons better than I do. And he plays them at least somewhat against me. Now, uh, I'm going to read just a little bit today. Um, this is uh, this is the screw tape, screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. It was written during World War II. It is allegedly an allegory of um, um, an uncle demon writing to his nephew. So this is screw tape writing to Wormwood. Um, here's what he's going to say. A promising line is in the following. Now that he is in love, he's talking about his patient, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind and hence a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers. So this is going to talk a little bit about prayer about this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort. False spirituality is always to be encouraged on the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is the true prayer. Humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy. Now you remember the enemy is God who in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick, you will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for the daily bread, interpreted in a spiritual sense, is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. Now, this is what he says about prayer. But since your patient has contracted the terrible habit of obedience... He will probably continue such crude prayers, whatever you do. But you can worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. Don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that's one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. You've thought this, haven't you? I have. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway. And thus a granted prayer becomes as good as a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. Did you catch that? How heinous of, of the devil to say, when your prayers are answered, to say, well, that would have happened anyway. Or if they're not answered, he says, whispers in your ear, see, I told you this prayer thing doesn't work. Now, he loves to play head games with us. And one of the ways he does this is to put in my brain a painful memory or a terrible kind of debilitating regret. And he gains a foothold because he knows that people without hope give in and give up faster than people that have a hope for the future. So he uses often one of three tactics. Now with me, I think he uses them all at the same time, but okay. Uh, one of three tactics um, to kind of convince us or to get to us plays three head games with us. Let, let's, let me give them to you on your outline, okay? Number one is he tries to convince us that we're too far gone and can't be saved. He'll say to you, okay, he'll say to you, okay, you're hopeless. You're irredeemable. By the way, if you've ever said that about another person, you're wrong. Okay. Number two, he'll try to convince us that we're perfect just the way we are. Remember the Billy Joel song? 
Okay? He's playing a, um, he's playing a Fender Rhodes with a phase shifter, and he sings, I love you just the way you are. Okay? Which, dear, that is true. But, but the idea, don't go changing trot to please me, you know, that kind of thing. I love you just the way you are. Um, uh, it's interesting that probably there's more these days at least of a certain age group, who believe um, I'm perfect the way, just the way I am, then there are those who believe they're irredeemable. I, I find that kind of intriguing. Um, and the third tactic is this idea of uh, to convince us that we have to do more good than bad and save ourselves. So my guess is that everybody in this room at one time or another bought into this, this at least a little bit. Um, I, okay, so uh, one of the ways I have shared the gospel in the past is I'll pull out a pull out a legal pad and I'll put a put a line down the middle of it and I'll say uh, most of us probably at one time in our lives thought that I can line up you know X's on one side so we're sp- that re- um, represent all the good things I've done in my lifetime. Just remember all those. Write them down. And then on the other side, I do O's, which represent all the bad things I've done in my life. And as long as the left column is larger than the right column, God owes me heaven. He owes me eternal life. Now, we laugh at that, but I, by the way, this was a Hebrew concept. This was an Old Testament concept, pretty much, okay? And you and I have bought into it a certain certain bit. Um, uh, how many times have I tried to share gospel with a friend, share the gospel with a friend, and they've, I've had to kind of deprogram that thought. So, um, uh, anyway, I, I think that one is pretty common among all age groups. I think the first one's pretty common with people of my age group, and the, and the one that's kind of number two might be more um, with um, um, uh, Busters and Gen X and Gen Yers. Okay, so, all right. Now, let's let's talk about this a little bit. How do these things play out in modern culture? Let's talk about how relentless the evil one is in his attack. Now, remember, my premise was from five minutes ago or so. He is real. He's personal. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient like God is. By the way, I think one of the things somebody, some of these guys over here, some of you young guys are just getting ready to throw me out of the room. But I think one of the kind of bad things that Star Wars has done for us is represent this force that can be either good or bad, right? It's not a person, it's just a force. And uh, Rhonda, when you and I were in college, we had a guy that I respect who preached about the Holy Spirit being the force. And I'm thinking, that's probably not a good image because you remember, the force in the Star Wars movies can be either good or bad. We're talking about not an evil force here. We're talking about a, a, a personality and someone that his, his greatest victory is your defeat. Okay? So let's read about him. Steve, I've got you teed up. You ready to read Ephesians 6? And we'll read down through verse 17 today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, now, today we're going to talk about the helmet of salvation. Uh, scholars, many scholars, believe that Paul probably, I hoped you had brought, you got to come up here, Pastor. Come on, can you come up here? Can you come up here? I was going to ask you earlier this week if you could bring that thing in here. So, our good pastor has donned the helmet of salvation. All right? Now, my son doesn't want to wear it. Scholars believe that he may have borrowed this image from a terrible time in, uh, I was going to bring my bike helmet, but I didn't think it would do the same thing. Uh, uh, during a terrible time in Israel's history, I, I, I'm trying, you got to hang right there. Here's what Isaiah said. He put on the righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And so Paul may have borrowed from that here. Now, let's. You want to talk about the helmet? You want me to? Yeah, but you wrote all this stuff. You know it by heart. So this well, is a pretty good example of one, right? Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a pretty good replica. They find them buried in everywhere where the Roman army was, from Crazy. Germany and France to, of course, Italy and Greece and North Africa. But it's an interesting. It was like the fiercest helmet of the day. You might picture like the Spartan helmet that um, is also the emblem of the greatest uh, college sports it's got, franchise. It's got in the history. thing down the front, right? But you can look up. Oh, you! Didn't they steal land or something like that? Isn't that their mascot? So uh, he's not ingratiating himself to this group. Right? Okay. I don't mind okay the local me. pagan deities. Uh, <laughs> my foreign gods in the land of Michigan. Uh, no, the helmet, what's interesting is you have a variety of things. You have a visor that's not to keep the sun out, but when someone's attacking you with a sword, it would stop that, which would, of course, be a good thing because you don't want your nose cut off. You have the back of your nape protected. What's missing on it is the straps that would have held it on your head and the little fabric that you would have worn on your head because just kind of holding on to this thing on the top of your head wouldn't have been all that comfy without that. So but, show us the eyebrows. Are the eyebrows on this thing? Yeah, so here's the eyebrows. This is really interesting. This is not just purely decorative, but it would have also been one of those things when someone's hacking at you with the sword, it would deflect that. It would bounce off from that. So they, they figured this out, not from just digging them up, but then kind of replicating moves and realizing, oh, there is a purpose behind all that. Even the ear sockets, which the Spartan helmet usually was lacking, which also meant most helmets couldn't hear. You couldn't hear, 
These guys needed to hear orders on the battlefield. The Roman army was akin to today's U.S. army. As we've seen in the news, we're better than everybody. So I won't name names, Russia, but we're better. Um, and Cooper's a missionary and better. Yeah, right. Uh, but you'd need to hear the instructions on the battlefield. You'd have sheep guards and all this. So, you know, probably as Paul is writing this, it's very doubtful that guy's fully armored up. It's probably sitting somewhere. He may have it sitting beside him, though. He wouldn't have gone very far. Most of them had a little tag here with a loop in it. And when they weren't in battle, because it was all folded up, they would just sort of wear it like behind them or such. So that, you know, they, you're not going to wear a helmet if you're not heading into battle. But you can imagine, just imagine a thousand of these sun glinting off of this. Pretty intuitive. And you're there with probably no helmets at all. And you think you're going to take on the human tanks. It was a, just the look of it was fierce. So, and it was the best thing to protect the head. They didn't understand the full, you know, physiology of a human, but they did know if you took a blow to the head, you were gone. Probably done. So they wanted to protect the head. I'll leave it here, and then you can come up and have show and tell later. Would you thank our pastor, the best illustrator ever? Okay, so you kind of get the picture here. So we're going to talk about, in the time we got left, we're going to talk about um, how that helmet, spiritually, putting on the helmet of salvation, protects us from some of the fears, some of the head games that Satan throws at us. Can I have you find a couple of, couple of passages? Dan, I see you going. I'm going to have you go to Ephesians 2. I'm going to have you read 1 through 5 and verse 8 and 9. John, can I get you to go to Romans 8, and I hope you read the first four verses. Um, Cindy, you mind to read today? Let's, go, let's take you to 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. Sherman, can I get you to read? I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians 4 and read verse 13 and 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and 14. I didn't put those two on there. Okay, so here we go. The helmet of salvation protects you from fear. What are you afraid of? Ron and I watched a movie last night that simultaneously fed both of our fears. It had lots of snakes, mine, and lots of spiders, and even scorpions, yours. Okay? So uh, we were, you know, we, it's a wonder we got any sleep last night, all right? Um, um, it's a great movie, though. Um, so um, it was uh, Jungle, whatever, it's The Rock, is it? Jungle, Jungle Cruise, yeah. It was a, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. I wouldn't want my 10-year-old to watch it, though. She'd never sleep. Um, so, um, so, as we get older, the things I'm afraid of get worse. Not that the snakes get bigger. They just get more. I, it's interesting that the longer I know this guy, the more... Subtle he becomes and heinous, you know? He speaks to me about stuff that just, <clears throat> and he, he feeds fears that are even latent from way back there. So well, let's talk about a couple of those. First of all, he's going to remind you of your past. He's going to give you a fear. He's going to feed the fear of your past. And the word I want you to think about is the word regret. Uh, Daniel Pink 
uh, surveyed 20,000 people and, and quizzed them about regret, what he discovered is that we all have regrets, and he says that regret is perhaps the most common human emotion after love. That's a wow. Now, it's what we do with regrets that matters. It, some regrets aren't sinful, so like I regret that I didn't try to buy a few shares of the IPO of Tesla stock. Okay, I, I regret that. I regret, Sherman, that I sold my 1967 Firebird. I regret that. It was perfect, and it would be worth, I paid 750 bucks for it. I don't know what I could get for it now, but I guarantee it's more than that. Okay, I wish I'd have hung on to that thing. Now, so some regrets aren't a matter of sin, but some are, and he will remind us of places where we've kind of stepped off the track. Why do I counter that? Let, let's read. Okay, Dan, I'm going to take you, if you will, to first five verses of Ephesians 2, and then I want you to jump to verse 8 and 9. And you have the quickened who were dead in trespass and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, spirit that now works in children of disobedience, among whom also we all have had our conversations in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, where he loved us, even when we were dead to sin and sin, have quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Eight and nine. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and not that. And that not of yourself is a gift of God, not work, lest any man should vote. So, he's going to say to you, you were dead. And he's probably going to remind, try to convince you that you're dead now. But the Bible says, by the way, one of the things you got to know, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. Are you aware of that? He came to bring dead men back to life. And that's what he's done for you. And that's one of the, one of the ways to put on this helmet of salvation is to, be, is to be reminded that and to remind the enemy that I am his. I have been forgiven. I have been transferred to, from death to life. Oh, it may be that I lived a different way years ago or last week. <laughs> but I can be forgiven, and I have been, and therefore I don't have to have any regret about the past. <clears throat> A second way that he'll throw fear up in your face, fear of the past, how about the fear of the present? How about the fear of the present? Um, um, he attacks us by telling us, you're just not good enough. You really don't measure up. Um, 
Uh, by the way, for me, I sit in meetings every day. You, you guys kind of know what I do for a living. I sit in meetings every day where I'm surrounded by people with like all kinds of alphabet soup after their name, like PhD or D-min or, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And I'm not. I, I operate from, uh, got a master's degree, but don't be impressed with that. And, and so it's very easily, easy for me to be intimidated by those that are smarter than me. Those that I have to call, well, I don't have to, but I, by respect, call them doctor. Okay? Uh, Rhonda works around people who have an MD or a DO, and you call them doctor. Uh, you don't call them by their first name. Or you, you work around people who wear the name general, the title general or colonel. You don't call them Bob or Sue either, right? So it's easy for us to get intimidated into believing, I am just not good enough. We rarely have a proper idea of who we are. Why? Because Satan wants to keep us right there. Now, let's listen to what the Bible says. John, did, did I take you over to Romans 8? Read the first four verses. Paul's going to deal with this here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might fully be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The word condemned or condemnation is used a couple of times in those four verses. It's like uh, Paul is dealing with this thing of the devil messing with me, of you're not measuring up. And so he uses a legal term for a negative verdict here, the idea of being condemned or living in condemnation facing the worst sentence available. But the issue is, what Paul tells us, is that although I couldn't accomplish complete compliance with God's law, his perfect law, what Jesus did for me on the cross made the difference. Instead of trying harder, he gives it to me free through faith in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to live in condemnation thanks to Christ because in him I'm not I live as one who's not condemned. Don't don't you love that thought? When the devil says to you, you don't measure up. Make sure you got the helmet on. I am perfect in Jesus. Okay, third thought. The fear of the future. Kind of made sense, didn't it? What worries us about the future? Lots of things, okay? That's usually what gets me up at 3 a.m. And it's either worrying about today, what's coming up today, or what's happening five years from now that none of us have control over, okay? So, um, um, Cindy, was it you that I took to 1 Thessalonians 5? Read 8 through 11, would you? It's going to talk again about the helmet of salvation. Sorry, I just turned the volume on. <laughs> okay. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Paul's kind of interesting here. You know, uh, if, you've watched, if you've watched any Western ever, and by the way, if you've never watched a Western, I'm Western, I'm not sure you and I can be friends. <laughs> but any Western ever, can you tell Joe has watched a Western or two? Uh, they'll say, bring him in dead or alive. Uh, but Paul's concept here is I'm either alive or alive. I'm alive here or I'm alive there. I've been greatly comforted in the loss of some dear people in my life lately by the thought that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Miriam, I hope that comforts you in the loss of our buddy. Uh, uh, Sherman Reed from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and 14. I, I have to live in this hope. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. You and I don't grieve like other people. At least that's Paul's contention here. Why? Because we have an everlasting hope for those who are in him. Here's how John says it. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. John makes it just pretty simple, doesn't he? Have Jesus in your life? Then you have eternal life. There's no need to fear the future. We have... Um, we have permission to grieve for those who die, but we have a hope. We don't grieve like other people grieve. Okay, so of the three fears that Satan throws up at you, fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future, which is the one that you most need to slide on the helmet of salvation to battle. Present. Present? Past? Present. Isn't it interesting? I bet if we took a poll, it might be a third, a third, a third. You know, at least. And on some given day, it might be one and another day it might be another. Right? But the truth is, by strapping on the helmet of salvation... I've got an answer for every one of those. Fear of the past, fear of the present, fear of the future. When I put on the helmet of salvation, I'm acknowledging that my confidence is in him, not in my own efforts. Now, so what do I do when the evil one attempts to convince me I'm not, a, I'm not good enough? I remind him of my helmet. I, uh, most of you know, that know me for very long, uh, know that, uh, by the way, our buddy Bill and I got together as a result of both of us rode a motorcycle. 
Okay, we rode together thousands and thousands of miles, Miriam. And he was the leader of the pack every time. What my wife said to me, my wife the nurse, when I bought a Harley was, you can get one, but you're going to wear a helmet, didn't you? And there were only on rare occasions uh, where I would go from point A to point B some short distance without one on. I'd put on a ball cap like that was going to help anything. Or you protect your hair. Uh, yeah, like, I, like it did that. Because I always felt, and maybe she felt, I had a wreck, I might break a bone or six. But it's not going to take me out. If you read the paper, if you read the paper, anytime there's a fatality motorcycle accident, most of the time, the person's not wearing a helmet. I, I just find that interesting. Now, are you, I, I, was I testing, was I testing uh, the, the Lord and his uh, angels of protection over me by riding, period? Yep, I get that. But you know what? I don't want to live this life without a helmet on. And I'm, every day, I need to remind Satan that I am not vulnerable to that attack, partner. Because I know, remember last week, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Strap on your helmet before you get on that bike, okay? I hope this has been helpful to you. It's been really, really good for me. Guess where we'll study next week? Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. And I'll see you then, all right? Have a great week.